One thing that I will tell you about, because there are a number of different ways to control your fear, manage your arousal and manage the stress response. And the one thing that I want to draw everybody to is this notion of sleep. Sleep is our most underrated tool. I speak about sleep. I'm on Clubhouse now, which Doug and I have discussed. I think it's one of the most important things that we can be doing as humans. But sleep can really help us manage our emotions. There is a direct correlation between our sleeping habits and our emotions. So, Doug, I think when it comes to fear and how can we control our emotions, you know, what we do know first and foremost is when you're in a, an anxious state or a fearful state or in these negative thought states, you can't turn off a thought with a thought. You can only turn off a thought or turn around a negative uh, thought or fear response by changing your state. So you have to literally get up and go for a run or get up and do 10 push-ups. And we call this in sports psychology, we call it anchoring. I'm Doug Bobes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobes, and today's guest is Louisa Nicola. She is a trained clinical neuroscientist, the founder of NeuroAthletics, and works with professional athletes to enhance peak brain performance. I am not sure which is more inspiring, her wealth of knowledge and expertise or her incredible story. Louisa grew up training competitively as a triathlete in Australia. One day while she was on her bike training for the triathlon world championship, a car struck her, leaving her knee ruptured and shattering her dreams of competing. She was told by a doctor that she would never walk again, but that didn't stop her from making a comeback. Louisa ended up crossing paths with a special mentor that taught her the importance of the mind body connection. This ultimately changed her life and gave her the superpower to not only walk again, but to compete again. We go in-depth about this extraordinary accomplishment and how it set the tone for the work she does today as a neuroscientist. Louisa and I have a detailed conversation on managing emotions, fear, stress, and the entire nervous system. What you will learn is that the biggest trick to coping with all these things is optimizing how you sleep. She shares some shocking information on the negative impacts of poor sleep, including how it affects your memory, emotions, immune system, and genetics. It can even alter your brain. But don't worry, she also shares practical tips that you can do to improve your sleep, as well as some innovative ways to train your mind, thrive under pressure, and much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Louisa Nicola to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Louisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored and delighted. Yeah, I don't know what's more inspiring to me, your work or your story, but I'm sure we're going to get into both, right? I mean, it's awesome. You've accomplished so much in your life and you should be really proud of everything that you've gone through, overcome and how you've turned a negative into a positive in a really compelling way. Thank you. It's funny. My friend said to me a few weeks ago, she's like, I feel like you've got, you've had 10 lives. And I'm <laughs> like, really? So I think it does accumulate over time, all the little events in your life. Yeah. So let's get into it. So what I want to know, and I think the audience can get a lot out of is you were a professional triathlete back in Australia when you were younger. 
and you were striving to compete at a world-class level and you're a few weeks away from the world championships, I believe in Beijing Mm -hmm. and you're on a bike, you get hit Mm -hmm. by a car and then you're told not only by somebody that you knew, but by a doctor that you might not ever be able to walk or run again. And then you somehow get connected to this guy who helps you understand the importance of the mind body connection, gets you to be able to, to run again, you start competing And then that inspires you to kind of get into the work you're doing now. So walk the audience through how the heck you went from that person and what was going through your mind when you got hit by that car Mm. from that moment to being able to not only compete again, but now do what you're doing now and helping other people. Yeah, it's it's so funny. Every time I talk about this, it brings me back to that moment. So I grew up in Australia. And if you know anything about Australians, that we are surrounded by the ocean. So we're all brought up as good swimmers. And I was always a swimmer. And that was always my my feet. And so one day I decided to do a triathlon and I was 17 at the time and ended up coming first. And it was just by chance. I didn't really understand too much about riding a bike or running, but I just did it. And so I naturally got into the world of triathlon and I put my heart and soul into it. I was picked up by an Australian triathlon coach and he told me when I was around 17, 18, he said, listen, if you do everything right and you listen to me, I think I can get you to the World Championship Series in Beijing in 2011. And I never thought that that would be possible. I was So look, I did it. I was at university at the time. I finished um, my undergraduate degree where I studied human physiology. So I did exercise physiology and teaching. And that's what I thought my life was going to be. And so I was training. We train as triathletes. We train seven days a week. I was training five hours a day. So it was pretty much my home, my life. I was living and breathing it. And then 2011, I remember we had to go out. We were doing a long ride. And I, by the way, in terms of metric systems, I'm going to be referring to kilometers and, and Celsius because that's just what I remember. But we had to go out and do a 200-kilometer bike ride. And I was with two of my teammates, and we were just gliding along. And at the 100-kilometer mark, we had to do a U-turn. And we were still in the bike lane, but, yeah, we got, we got hit by a driver who was 82 years old who had been driving for around four hours without a break, and he smashed me. At He was traveling at 85 kilometers per hour, I think, 80 or 85 kilometers per hour. We were traveling at 40 kilometers per hour. So it was a lot of pressure. So, you know, so do you know what kilometers per hour is in, in terms of miles per hour? Just off the top I of your head. I really don't, but I can look at that. Well, is it, fa- is that, is, would you consider that going fast? Cause I, again, I don't know the exact conversions off the top of my head. But... Oh, well, 80 kilometers per hour is 49 miles or 50 miles per hour. Okay. Wow. So if you combine that with, I was traveling up 40 kilometers an hour. Yeah. So that's, that's <laughs> yeah. being hit at like a speed of 75 kilometers an yeah, hour. Okay. And so it was, it was quite traumatic. I had to have a complete, my knee just needed to be reconstructed. So I had to forfeit my, my world title. And it was very hard, which as you probably know, it's Doug, it's when you, it felt like a, something was taken away from me, yeah. my entire life goal. I mean, it's, it was very traumatic in itself from a physiological perspective and also an emotional and mental perspective. So that's, uh, that's what happened there. And I was told that I was, Louisa, you're not going to be able to compete again. You probably won't even be able to run again. And that really hurt me. Yeah. And then I, to cut a long story short, we had, we had a man 
by the name of Bobby McGee come and train us in Australia. And he was at the time Usain Bolt's running coach. And when he said to me, he said, what's, we we all did a, a consult with him and did some training. And he said, what's going on with you? And I told him, and he said, listen, I can get you back to where you were. And I said, I don't think that that's a possibility. I've had my legs basically cut in half. And he said, I think I can, but I'm not going to use the physiological approach. I'm going to train your brain. And then he introduced me to this thing that I've based my entire life around right now. And that is the EEG, which is an electroencephalogram. So he showed me back in 2011 that if I train my brain rather than my body, I can achieve better results than what I did the year before. So I, that's what we did. And I requalified and went to the World Championship Series again in Auckland in 2012. And I came 13th. Wow. It's, it's so inspiring. And there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think for starters, I'm sure getting that news that you were told that you're not gonna be able to walk or run again, and combined with the actual trauma of the injury in the back of your mind, you probably knew it was true because you already had a bit of exercise science and physiological background where you're like, all right, it's probably true. Like I'm going to nearly lose both my legs. The probability of me being able to compete, let alone or to walk or run, let alone compete again, or slim to none. So what, what exactly, I know you said that you had your identity kind of stripped from you. And I think there's a lot of people that feel right now that they have been hit by a bike or hit by a car literally in their life, whether it's personally, professionally, spiritually, and emotionally. Like what, how did you, from a mindset perspective, how did you really start to work on that so that you get to a place where you started to believe in yourself and then be able to develop a new identity around who you were at that time? Yeah, that's a good question because it's very hard. It's very hard to understand where you are in the world and who you are and what you want when your entire life was revolved around this one sport, then it gets taken away from you. So I found a love and that's, it was 2011 that I realized what the brain was and that became my entire life. I became obsessed. I went on to study medicine and science, which has gotten me to where I am today with a a major in clinical neurophysiology. And I became absolutely obsessed with the brain. I wanted to find out what the brain is, what the mind is, how can I reconstruct my life in a logical approach because I didn't want to assess it from an emotional approach because it was too hard for me. So I started to understand, well, If I do this, if I close my eyes and do this certain practice, which is meditation, what is that doing to my brain? Oh, it's doing this. And that's how I approach my life right now. It's um, somewhat unorthodox. I'm a very clinical, very logical-based person. And I've heard that it is my both a strength and a downfall. However, that's just who I am. So I set out and fell in love with, I found a new love and it overtook triathlon. And I never thought that anything in my wildest dreams would ever take that over. And I'm still in my heart of hearts. I still am a triathlete, but it's, look, it's, I just regained my strength by finding a different love. And that's what kept me going. And that's what keeps me going today. Yeah. I think you, when when, any, when anyone's trying to make any kind of transformation, whether it's bouncing back from a traumatic injury like you had, or they're trying to recover from addiction, or they're trying to maybe pursue a new relationship after getting their heart broken, whatever it is, they have to really not only work on themselves, but have a sense, a deep sense of meaning to whatever they're doing and attach a really instrumental why to the cause that they're trying to approach. And, and what I want to know from you, and I want to dig into this a little bit was 
a lot of people quit during their journey or during their transformation with anything because they, they lack the belief in themselves. And, and I would bet that when you first experience this injury, and even probably when you were first kind of trying to get started getting back on your feet, if you will, no pun intended, that you had this, sen- this massive sense of doubt that you weren't going to make it. What Do you remember if there was a moment or a point that was really pivotal that you're like, you know what? I'm going to compete again. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it. I really believe in myself. And if you had one of those, what was it? And how was that, how was that moment instrumental in your comeback story? Look, I, I had many doubts, many fears. I'm never going to get back on a bike again. I'm never going to do this. And my teammates at the time who still are uh, my best friends, we, you basically build a family when you're a triathlete. They kept saying to me, Louisa, what if this is your path? to what if this was the best thing that ever happened to you? And I said, what does that mean? They said, well, you were always so, and look, Doug, I got to be honest, when you're a a triathlete and you want to be, that was my goal. I want to be the world's best triathlete. You have to put a lot of time and energy in that. And it came with a lot of sacrifice. I missed, I missed a lot of weddings. I missed a lot of funerals. I'm Greek. So I have a lot of um, cousins. I missed a lot of christenings and I, I ruined a lot of relationships because my, I chose triathlon as my holy grail. So by ending that, and and with any athlete, there is always a timestamp. There's always going to be an expiration date. And I never knew what I wanted to do. So it pushed me into studying medicine, pushed me into studying science. And I think that enabled me to get over my fear. But I always have fears. We all do. The fear response is a natural um, human process. So it's not about how do we mitigate that? We're always going to have negative thoughts. We're always going to have a fear of something. But it's how can we train our nervous system to control that. And that's what I I did. And I think that's a good place for us to maybe continue on in your journey is is talk about that. Because I do want to get back to the mind-body connection because I think Mm. that there's going to be some people that have some questions or like, all right, like it makes doesn't really make sense to me. Like why would fixing your brain or training your mind, how would that help you so much physically to recover from such a a vicious injury like the one that you had? But I, I really want you to kind of talk about that. But let's talk about fear first. And how people can create this buffer in, in fight or flight, because life's always going to throw us trouble. It's always going to throw us anxieties, different fears. And I think what happens is when people are scared or they're feeling fearful, they make impulsive decisions that they wish afterwards, they wish they wouldn't have done or wouldn't have made. So, uh-huh. Yes, I, I believe that. Yeah. So if you could maybe provide a few tips or walk the audience a bit through the process that you work with some of your professional athletes or everyday people on how they can create that segue, that buffer between the stress response or the fear response, if you will, to make a healthy decision to position them to use that fear to their advantage. Yeah. I'll start by first introducing this beautiful thing that we all have. It's called the, the nervous system. And This thing that we call the nervous system is responsible for everything we know, all of our behavior, all of our emotions, everything we feel about ourselves and the outside world, everything we think and believe, it's really at the center of our entire experience of life and who we are. That is the human nervous system. And it's divided into two fields. It's divided into the central nervous system, which is our brain and spinal cord. And then it's also divided into the peripheral nervous system, which is all of these nerve fibers that connect to the rest of our body from the central nervous system to the outside body. So everything we feel, whether it be touch, emotion, mechanical senses, 
gets related to our brain. For example, if we touch a hot stove, we have these sensory fibers in our fingers that signal up through the spinal cord to the brain where it gets programmed and interpreted and says, this is hot, move your hand. And when it comes to fear, it's, it's quite similar in the sense that wherever we place emotion, that's how we're going to create neural plasticity. And neuroplasticity is just our brain's ability to change and adapt through experience. So when it comes to fear, okay, we fear something that we've experienced before and we've attached a negative feeling to it, if you will. So let's say, for example, and I'm going to come from a perspective of athleticism. Mm -hmm. We have an athlete like myself. I go out, I was hit by a car and I ruptured my my knee and then I had to get it surgically fixed. I had a fear for about six months to get back on my bike. The fear was embedded in my brain because of the fact that when I got hit by the car, the amount of emotion that I placed on getting hit really created this pattern in my brain that if you get back on a bike, you're going to be hit. So it creates this fear. And every single day, you keep looping around that same fear. And the fear just gets amplified and amplified. But what happens is, so that to me is a real fear response. But what we're seeing, which I'm sure you can concur with me, is in society, we have a fear around speaking up. We have a fear around doing things. We have a fear around things that are really not true. And I I ask myself, and this is for my athletes as well, I ask them, why do you have a fear of failure? I have this one athlete now, he's a major league soccer player, and he's the way he is in training, he's a bullet, he's a a trailblazer, but then when he goes on the field, he's a completely different person. And it's this, something is blocking him. And it's the fear that he's going to do, he's mentioned to me, I'm scared I'm going to do this. But this particular thing, we'll call it X as a variable, this particular thing that he is scared of. He's never done it before. So he's envisioned himself. He has created these negative thoughts over and over and over and over in his head where he's become so fearful over something that doesn't exist. So how do we work with somebody like that? And this is coming from a clinical perspective. One thing that I will tell you about, because there are a number of different ways to control your fear, manage your arousal and manage the stress response. And the one thing that I want to draw everybody to is this notion of sleep. Sleep is our most underrated tool. I speak about sleep. I'm on Clubhouse now, which Doug and I have discussed. I speak a lot um, about sleep because I think it's the most important thing that we can be doing as humans. Well, one of the most important things. But sleep can really help us manage our emotions. There is a direct correlation between our sleeping habits and our emotions. So, Doug, I think when it comes to fear and how can we control our emotions, instead of, you know, what we do know first and foremost is when you're in a, an anxious state or a fearful state or in these negative thought states, you can't turn off a thought with a thought. You can only turn off a thought or turn around a negative uh, thought or fear response by changing your state. So you have to literally get up and go for a run or get up and do 10 push-ups. And we call this in sports psychology, we call it anchoring. So with a lot of my athletes, I get them to anchor. So if they're having a a fear or a, a negative thought, they have to anchor the thought. And if you think about an anchor, how it loops around, that's what they do. So they basically get their fear. They give themselves a physical cue. It may be a click or it may be a push-up or a star jump, and then they have to anchor the thought into another thought. They have to think of something positive. And that's what we call anchoring. But 
we can do these things, but I think why not help yourself out by getting a head start, okay? Why not give yourself a head start by managing your nervous system? And one way to manage that is via sleep. And if I'm able to, and you can interject, I'd love to just touch on sleep for a moment. Is that okay with you? Yeah, for sure. And I I do want to kind of follow up on a point you made. I think sometimes the fear of the outcome of of something we're trying to do is often greater than the fear of whatever we're trying to do in itself, right? Like we, we put all this stock into an attached an expectation to whatever we're trying to do. Right. And we create this fear and this emotion that gets tied to it. Like for instance, like sometimes the fear of, we have a fear of like asking somebody out, for instance, because what what are we afraid of? Rejection. We're going to be embarrassed. They're going to say no, whatever it is which we build this thing up in our head. It becomes this huge ordeal. And then we go and we ask that person out and whether they say no or yes, afterwards, we're like, eh, it wasn't that bad. Like, why was I so scared? Even though they rejected you, you're like, it wasn't that bad. And then you get better at facing that fear. It's like a muscle. You have to work that confidence muscle. You have to work that fearless muscle. You have to work that courage muscle, right? Mm. So what you're saying is, I believe now- No, I agree with you. I think that what you're saying is you have to go and get punched in the face so many times to realize that the punches in the face really don't hurt you. Yeah, exactly. And the problem is we would never let a a physical person punch us in the face like over and over again, but we let life punch us in the face over and over again by our lack of response to the things that we know we should be doing or by not facing our fears or by doing things that that sabotage our nervous system, that sabotage our sleep. And we wonder why we, we wake up two, three, four, five years down the road after these decisions start, these choices, we started making these choices and why our, our life is, in, is a mess. Why mm. we have all this brain fog, depression, anxiety, why we're burned out, why we're stressed, why our relationships are falling apart. And it all comes back to just not being able to take the, the punches that life throws at you. And like you said, being confident to know that, like once you get punched in the face, like, like, wow, it wasn't that bad. Like once you ride the bike, you fall down and you get back up. Or mm. once you go jump in the deep end, you're like, oh, like I, that was kind of scary. But, and I only lasted a few seconds, but I'm going to try again next time or whatever the case, we can go on and on with examples. So I would love to though pivot into sleep and how lack of sleep. And if you don't sleep properly and efficiently, the long-term effects, not just on your brain, but on genetics, So talk a bit about that. I just want to touch on what you said before we go into sleep. It's I have this notion of I make my athletes do this task. They get a piece of paper and they write down on the top. The task is what's the worst that can happen? That's what the task is called. They have to sit in front of me and they have to list out all the possible things in their head that can happen. They may come up with a hundred things, you know, of, you know, if they go and let's just say if they go and bungee jump or if they go onto the field and I say, what's the worst that can happen? If it doesn't lead to death, then I say, you have to go and do that thing. And often we put these, like you just said, we put all these big things in our head and we don't do it. But the, the moment that we do do it, we just really break through those fears is the moment that we realize you know what, I was putting too much pressure on myself. And it's amazing how the mind can wander. And I think that really does have something to do with our emotion and our regularity of our emotions. So that brings me into this this world of sleep. So we know with sleep that we have in mammals, humans, we have two stages of sleep. We have non-REM and we have REM. So 
uh, non-REM has four stages, which are clearly one, two, three, and four. REM sleep, it stands for rapid eye movement. That's what REM sleep is. Now, when we go into these sleep cycles, if you will, we have an amazing ability to go into non-REM sleep, REM sleep, and then slow wave deep sleep. Now, during slow wave deep sleep, we get amazing things happening. We have the introduction of the glymphatic system, which is basically like a sewage system. It goes in and it cleans out your brain. So you wake up just feeling great. In slow wave sleep, we have where our, all of our emotions get uh, regulated in our brains, where all, of our, um, where all of our memories get embedded into our brain, our hippocampus. We feel better. We think better we're clearer and we're able to manage our emotions much better. And there's a lot of science and data behind this. To me, there is no physiological system in the body and there is no operation of the brain that isn't wonderfully enhanced by sleep when you get it or demonstrably impaired when you don't get it. We have to be able to understand as human beings that sleep is our health insurance our health insurance in fighting off infection, our health insurance in managing our emotions, our health insurance in managing and fighting off anxiety. These are the certain things that we need to get in. Now, Doug, you may say to me, well, that's pretty simple. Then everyone should sleep. Here's the, here's the twist. Not a lot of people are getting into deep sleep. Not a lot of people are getting into that slow wave deep sleep. So therefore, we're going to sleep for eight or nine or 10 hours, but we're not even getting into the deep sleep. So we're waking up and we don't have a head start. We don't have a head start on, it makes it even harder for us to manage emotions because we just haven't even started the day off right. So I think that as humans, we put so much pressure on ourselves to perform better when we haven't even, and we're like, why can't we manage our emotions? Why are we so fearful? But I try and challenge that by saying, how well do you know your brain? How well do you know your sleep patterns? Yeah, I think a lot of people, we all know we need to sleep better, right? And you hear the, the term like get seven to nine hours of sleep or make sure that you're not using your cell phone before you go to bed or make sure you're sleeping in a dark room. But I think if we could really understand the science of why, I think people can have some sense of awareness and understanding on why it's so important. Because I think most people know that if you don't sleep well, you're going to be more stressed. You're going to be more anxious. You're going to have less energy. You're probably going to make uh, poor food, food choices, that sort of thing. Oh yeah. But I think yeah. the interesting thing I've heard you talk about is the study from, from Matthew Walker. And he talks about from a genetic perspective, Oh yeah. how, how lack of sleep can alter your brain. And oh, I think gosh. if you could talk about that, I think not only would people understand more, more so, or, or I think if you could talk about that, I think people would be able to not only better understand the importance of not only sleeping, but deep sleep, but I think it might also get them to think twice now, now that they know that, okay, if, it, if I'm not sleeping properly, it's not just affecting my energy, but it could affect my kids. It could affect my grandkids and it could affect my family, the lineage in my family tree forever. We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. 
Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. I mean, let me ask you a question. Do you prime your, yourself for sleep? I would be lying to you if I said I prime myself for sleep every night. I mean, I have a routine where I, I do my best. And with Clubhouse now, I'm like, gosh, I got to get back on my routine where I honestly, I try not to be on my phone late at night. I try to, I have a white noise machine. I try not to drink caffeine first past a certain hour. I t- take a nice hot shower at the end of the day. I do a little bit of breath work and meditation, but to say it's consistent, I, I would be, I wouldn't be telling the truth. So it, I mean, we can go off of that. Yeah, it's interesting because when I ask, I to me, I think, why isn't everybody looking at sleep the way I do? And I've gone into studying exactly what sleep is and how it impacts us. And I do talk about, when. where did you hear me talk about the Matthew Walker? I think I was listening to you on... Was it Chase's pot? One of the podcasts we were talking about, you were talking about how it, it altered the genes in the brain. And I was fascinated. I was like, wow, this is some stuff we, we can get into because there's a yeah. lot of people, like I said, most people, I would say, just like most people know what to eat, what not to eat hmm. for the most part. I would say most people can agree that you need to eat more fruits and vegetables. You need to eat the less processed meat. You need to eat less sugar. You need to eat good quality proteins. You know, good carbs, good fats, all that. Most people can agree on that. Most people can agree we need to all obviously drink more water. And most people can agree that we need to sleep better. But I don't think I've, I've, I've heard it described in the way you did from with Matthew's work. And you put it in, in layman's terms for people to understand like the real science on the importance of it so that people can utilize their sleep to not only improve their life, but the lives of their kids and the lives of the people around them. Yeah. So let me tell you about this paper, which if anybody is interested, I've got it linked in a recent uh, social media post on my Instagram. But so Matthew Walker is a very well-known sleep scientist out at UC Berkeley, I believe, but he's absolutely phenomenal. Now, I don't know if he was involved in this paper. However, there was this paper that was produced, PNAS, which is, which is the, a very well-known journal article, now publication, I should say. What they did for this research study was they got a group of healthy adults, okay, and they limited them to six hours of sleep a day for one week, so just seven days. Now, you think that's just one week out of our lives. What can that possibly do? Well, what they found was they found a change in the activity of 711 genes compared to when the subjects got eight hours of sleep. Mm. Let's think about this for a moment. We have in our gene, in our human genome, we have approximately 20,000 genes, okay? 20,000, which are responsible for many different things. We have genetic disorders, which means where there's a mutation in just one of those 20,000 genes. Uh, a genetic mutation in just one gene can be the matter of life and death. If we are changing 711 genes in our entire genome, you are having an epigenetic change of 3%. 711 uh, divided by 20,000 ends up being approximately 3%. 
you think of how many people in our society is actually sleeping six hours a night for a week. Probably, I would say around 80 or 90% of it, the entire world is probably sleeping like that. But guess what they found? In half of the genes of these 711 genes that, that there was a change in, half of them were upregulated and half of them were downregulated. Downregulated means they were impaired, okay, which means they were not functioning well. Wow. So this means that the ones, they also found that the specific genes that were downregulated were the genes associated with the immune system. This is why when we don't sleep well, this is why we are prone to getting colds or flus. This is why we feel run down because our immune system genes have been impaired. Now, here's the other twist. The genes that were upregulated were associated with tumor production and long-term chronic inflammation and stress and cardiovascular disease. That in itself is absolutely mind-boggling because people feel uncomfortable already about genetically modified embryos and CRISPR and genetically modified foods, but you're performing a similar experiment on yourself when you're not getting enough sleep. And if you don't let your children get the sleep that they need, for example, we're, we're ta- there's a big uproar right now in the medical community around letting kids go to uh, school later so they can get more sleep. If you don't let your children get enough sleep that they need, you may be inflicting an inadvertently a genetic manipulation. So if we can understand that you are changing your human genome with less sleep, I think that will cause more people to go out and do things like invest in methods and protocols to help them sleep better. Wow. Gosh, that's a lot. And I think Mm. what's interesting is it just seems to me the brain kind of likes homeostasis and it seems that in order for it to perform optimally, it has to have just be regulated in a constant state, if you will. Meaning that like when you're not, when you're sleeping poorly and it's throwing your your brain off, it's going to throw certain genes up, which will make them worse in some way. It'll trigger, like oh, you yeah. said, some of the stuff you, you referenced, and then it brings, you can dysregulate them and bring the genes down and it can cause other negative side effects like you alluded to a moment ago. So, all right, I'm scared a little bit. I don't want to dive yeah. any more deeper. I don't want to have nightmares. I want to be able to sleep tonight. So let, let's get into it. Like, how do you, how do you train the mind? How do you prime yourself to be able to get the best sleep possible? Like, what's that look like? Well, Look, there's a number of different protocols you can take, but I'm going to discuss the, the few that are really easy for anybody to get, yeah. okay, these tools. And let's start off with the fact that from the moment you wake up in the morning, you are already priming yourself for how you're going to sleep that night. So we have a circadian rhythm, a circadian clock that is a 24-hour internal clock. So when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is going to dictate how you sleep at night. So let's just talk about, so therefore we have morning routines and night routines. Let's talk about some night routines. Let's say, and there is evidence to show that if you are looking at light between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., you're going to dramatically impair your brain's ability to get into that deep sleep phase. So let's just, let's just stick to that for now. So the 11 p.m. So let's just say, well, we, if we know that biologically, 
then we should know that we need to be asleep well and truly before 11. So let's just say we want to be asleep by 10, 10.30. That's a reasonable time. That's what I try and aim for every night. Our wind down routine should start at around 9.30. And this is how it looks. First of all, you don't want to be eating two hours before you go to sleep. Okay, so you want to be going to sleep on a relatively empty stomach per se. So let's just say we're going to stop eating at 7.30 p.m. At 9.30, we're going to stop looking at screens and we're going to start to dim the lights. Okay, we know that any type of light exposure is going to signal to the brain that we're awake and start to release uh, this hormone called cortisol, which is responsible for our fight or flight. So it's going to make us be more alert and wake us up. We don't want that. So we want to start not looking at screens. I don't, I don't buy into the um, biohacking space where you can go out and wear glasses, blue light blocking glasses. I mean, you can, and it may, I think there is some science behind it to suggest that maybe it will mitigate some type of light, but let's just try and stick to dimming the lights. And well, I, like- I think, well, I think here's the thing. I don't want to interrupt you, but I think what I love about your approach is you take a very preventative approach to, to this and not a reactive where you're like trying to train yourself to sleep better. You're trying to help plan ahead so that you can have a, a foundation built and have the fundamentals needed to sleep better. And then the blue light glasses or anything else might aid in that, but it's certainly not going to solve all your, your sleep problems is what I'm getting. Yeah, exactly. Like okay. a, a pill is not going to save all of your problems either. Got okay? it. So, Let's start. So we're we're dimming the lights. Okay. So that's one thing that we can do. Then not eating two hours before um, going to sleep. The second thing is our body likes to sleep when the temperature is lowered a bit. So again, with the biohacking, there is this thing out there called the chili pad where people are investing in it. And I believe it, it lowers the temperature I think it's set, I don't know too much about it, but it, it sets the, the temperature of your bed. I think it's, there's a pad on your bed that maybe it makes you a bit cold. And what we know is that we can get into sleep better, deep sleep, when our temperature, our core body temperature is lowered. So you can do things like not having too many blankets on at night, not wearing heavy clothing, maybe taking a really hot shower because that also, that gets you tired, but it also makes you really hot. So when you go into bed, you have a cooling down system. So that's the, I think that's the third thing that we can talk about, the temperature. So what's the idea? What's the ideal? Are you going to go into these step-by-step or is is there an ideal temperature you want to start with? There is. And I I can't remember it on the the top of my head because I I always want to speak from science, but I will definitely find the temperature for you while we speak and then we'll just keep talking. But so just what a cool state feels like though, right? You, You don't want to go to bed feeling completely hot. Your body temperature really wants to be around, I would say six degrees lower than what it usually is. Which, by the way, which brings me to the fact that you don't want to be having any alcohol because alcohol raises your core body temperature. So mm. if you do have alcohol within a three-hour time frame before sleep, you're going to get fragmented sleep. You're going to have more awakenings and you're really going to disrupt that REM sleep cycle. So stay, if I can suggest anything, it's try and limit your alcohol to just during the day maybe or not at all. So we've got that. And then we've also got this notion of we have wandering minds. And let me ask you something, Doug, have you ever gone to bed? You've laid in your bed and you've just got, your mind is just racing and you're like, how do I shut my mind off? 
I mean, yeah, is the ocean blue? Of course, that exactly. happens all the time. <laughs> exactly. And that's what we don't want. We have this, this thing, and I'm guilty of this yeah. almost every night. I, for some reason, I like to check emails all the time because I don't like having a buildup of them. And I do a, a really stupid thing where I'll check an email at like 10 or 11 p.m. at night. And that was, yeah. that's just a really silly thing. So what happens is we have a hard time settling our mind. Okay, which obviously doesn't help us go to sleep. So another, you know, thing that you can be doing for your sleep routine is trying to just get rid of anything that stresses you out. If some people get stressed out reading a book, okay, some people get stressed out watching television. Everyone's different. You have to find what makes you less stressed. For me, I liked the way I I, I wind down with my mind is I I only read textbooks and literature. So that's not going to calm down my mind, but watching a funny TV show will. So that you have to pick your you have to pick your your poison. I would say so. That's a that I would say on a just to be able to start this process of getting into a deep sleep routine and priming the brain for deep sleep. It would be to start with the suggestions that I just mentioned, which were dimming the lights, not eating two hours before, yep. no alcohol. Core body temperature. Core body temperature. And then... Not checking any emails and not doing anything that is mentally stimulating. Because that kind of goes along the same lines of not being exposed to the light between 11 and 4 a.m. And I've heard that before. I think, I don't know if it was Andrew that talked about it or somebody else, Andrew Huberman. But I think it's so important, right? Because I think sleep kind of is the motherboard, if you will of everything in our life as far as performance, because think about it. If you have a bad night's sleep, just throws the whole day off, right? You wake up groggy and then you end up, you know, being too tired to do, to go to the gym or you end up being too tired to make breakfast and you maybe you go eat, you eat a bar or you end up being irritable or anxious or I mean, go on and on with all the negative side effects from, from lack of sleep. So I think you went pretty in depth on, on how to prime yourself to get, optimal sleep. And then also the reasons why sleep is so important and quality sleep, because I think when it comes to sleep, it's quality over quantity. I don't know the exact numbers and the science behind this, but I would imagine that it's better to get five hours of deep quality sleep than it is to get eight hours of of choppy sleep where you've getting up 10 times in the middle of the night and you're not really getting into that deep REM state. Would I be correct? Absolutely. That's exactly okay. right. And it's, I think that's it that you asked me at the start, well, what are some of the things I can control our fear response? It's things like this. It is things like getting back to basics. We don't need to go out and get this nootropic and we don't need to go out and do anything that we have not been gifted with naturally or for free. The reason why sleep is just so amazing is because it's free. We, If we just learn and we just educate ourselves on how can we become better at sleeping, it'll probably solve a lot of issues that are happening in your life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's what I always tell my clients or people that, I mean, just ask me questions about things like this. I say like, there's no pill, no supplement, like nothing that's going to fix the problem. You have to really address it from the root. Like you have to mm-hmm. go at like what's causing the problem. Yeah. Because I think so many times we're looking for that quick pill, that magic fix. We want our things solved yesterday when really it takes time. It takes some work. And if you've been somebody that's had poor sleep quality, like so many people for years, it's not going to take two days to all of a sudden have magical sleep, but it's going to take you committing to the first few days of changing your routine and doing the necessary things 
to prime yourself to get optimal sleep that will over time um, help to kind of alleviate a lot of the, the negative side effects that have come from the lack of sleep. Absolutely. And look, I think sleep quality is suffered when you don't control the room temperature, when you don't control the light, when you don't control the nutrients in your diet, when you don't eliminate alcohol, when you don't eliminate caffeine close to bedtime. And if you don't meditate, all of these things throughout, during the day really control how we're going to sleep at night. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely want to dive deep into to training the mind because that's kind of what you do. You, you kind of operate a little uh, gym, if you will, for, for the mind and the brain. And I, I want to get into it. So a few questions I have, I guess, to start is people are, are stressed out as they've ever been right now. There's mm-hmm. anxious, there's fearful, as I, I, we talked about fear earlier on. And what I would like to know is if there's anything you do with your athletes to help them train so that they can be better prepared to respond to stress, to be better prepared to respond to times when they're anxious or depressed. So they know that when they hit the situation, they're like, boom, I have like one or two things I know I can do, like I was saying earlier, to create that buffer in that moment so that this, this moment of adversity, this moment of setback doesn't turn into a bigger setback or bigger adversity because of the way they responded, because they weren't able to have the tools necessary to help prime themselves to better handle that the stress response, if you will. Yeah. And there's, like I said, there's, there's so many things that we can discuss and that stress response becomes heightened when we don't deploy on a a day by day, hour by hour choice. And the choice is to become aware of whatever is happening in your surroundings, whether you're feeling sleepy, really understanding, okay, I feel sleepy, whether you're feeling stressed about something, it's oh, I'm a bit stressed. What is that? Whether you're feeling anything. It's just, that's the first thing we need to become aware. And if we don't become aware, then we can't control it when it comes on board, right? I could say to you, as soon as you get stressed, what I want you to do is immediately drop everything and go for a run. I mean, I know that. And I know that if we have to change our state, our our physical state to get out of um, that depressed or stressed state or anxious state, then we just have to go and run. But sometimes we don't have enough energy or we don't have the right tools in our tool book to remember that. So the best advice that I could give is, first of all, really becoming aware hourly how you're feeling and just check in with yourself. Okay, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling that because if you don't know how you feel and you get an email that really disrupts you or you get a text message or a notification that really upsets you, it's going to throw you off the edge and you need to be prepared for that. And always say that I'm trying to build bulletproof minds. I don't really like that word, but it's how can we withstand the pressure that's going to come before us? So engaging in activities on a daily basis that make you happy, that bring you joy, but that you're in control of will give you a sense of being a bit certain about events. I think where we get mixed up is if we have so much uncertainty in our lives, then we're going to tip over the edge. But if we've got, you know, 30% is uncertainty and 50% is certainty, then we kind of got this balance. We've kind of got this balance of, well, if something comes before me, I can remember that there are some things that are in my life that are certain, but then there's some things in my life that aren't certain and that's okay too. Am I making sense? Yeah, I think a lot of managing stress and anxiety and fear and all this stuff is, is controlling the controllables. And having things in your life that will improve the way you feel about yourself, 
and getting rid of the things that have you feel negative about yourself. So like, for instance, like making sure you are exercising, making sure you are eating smart, making sure you are optimizing your sleep, making sure you are meditating, making sure you are surrounding yourself with people that bring the best out of you, making sure you are on a mission to continue to want to learn and grow and then getting rid of things like negative people, people that are always trying to bring you down. They're complaining to stop scrolling on social media all day or watching the news or eating junk food or drinking alcohol excessively, whatever the case may be. Like that's going to set up a nice foundation for you to be able to manage your emotions and manage your stress in a more productive way. And you talked about pressure, right? And I think our ability to manage times under pressure come from having the confidence to know that we've done it before, Mm. right? So I think anytime we're in a fight or flight response, we're in a moment where there's a lot of pressure, right? You work with a lot of athletes that are under pressure. They got that game-winning shot, game-winning kick. They are trying to do some sort of performance, right? It's pressure that if we can respond and keep our cool and practice things like breath work in that moment or journaling or calling a friend or listening to a podcast, something to alleviate and reduce the half-life of that adversity and then move through. And then it's like even keel, like nice and cool. Then it gives you confidence and it gives you confidence and you work that pressure muscle, you work that adversity muscle so that the next time it comes, it's there, but your physical sensations and your emotional sensations aren't nearly as bad because you're like, oh, I know what this is and I've gotten through it before. Do you see a lot of that with your athletes? Yeah, absolutely. I see that they to manage pressure is a big thing. So what I'm doing right now is, so I'm a clinical neuroscientist. I study the brain and how it relates to behavior. But the major tool I use is an EEG, which is the thing that I mentioned earlier that I became obsessed with in 2011. So I put EEG caps, both wet and dry, on our athletes while they're performing certain types of tasks. And I'm looking for dysfunction if you will, in different areas of their brain. If we find a dysfunction in the area of their brain, which is you know in the frontal lobe, and that's involved in executive function and management of emotional states, then that means that they're prone to not being able to manage pressure, then prone to not being able to really take on different tasks that someone who didn't have dysfunction would. So we kind of stop that. We kind of think, oh, well, okay, so this athlete, he's an NBA player. He needs to learn in a game how to manage pressure from the crowd, how to manage pressure from himself, how to be aware at all times. But he's going to be significantly impaired because his frontal lobe activity is really diminished. So we need to work on things of how can we rehabilitate that part of his brain. So when he is on the field or when he is on the the court, he catches of not just life, but he can manage the pressures of sport and of the game. Mm. No, it's, it's so true, right? Because I think anytime we're faced with these moments where game's on the line or you got a, a big job interview or you're going out on a first date with somebody you really like or you're going to do your first public speaking event or whatever it is, like being able to manage your emotions and manage your stress and manage that external stimuli of pressure is what really can separate somebody from not succeeding and succeeding. And not that you won't have, not that everything, I think there's success in everything. Cause I think every time you fail or something doesn't go your way, you learn, you grow and you, there's some success that comes from that because you focus on the things that came from whatever that moment was. And it allows you to become better. Mm. But I think if we're talking about like life's a game of inches, right? We've talked about this earlier. Like if you could make, a wrong turn, or you can make a turn too soon and get into a car accident. You could say something that you didn't want or didn't mean, and you could ruin a relationship, right? You could end up 
just missing a jump shot that could cost you your career, whatever the, ca- the case may be. Life's about inches. And the better that you can be at managing um, life when the stakes are high or when there is adversity or fear or discomfort, I think the better off you'll be long-term. And so I wanted to get into the last part I want to talk to you about is this mind-body connection. And you talked a well, bit can about I just, it. Yeah, can ahead. I just pose this? What if we all took a three-second break when we feel something? What if we don't respond to something straight away and we learn to control ourselves and say three seconds and we literally breathe in for three seconds and then, then we answer? Do you think that we'd have a different response? I do. I mean, I think, cause I think in time and in, in life, like when we, when stuff like that happens, we want to respond right away. It's like our ego gets in the way or like when we're in fight or flight, it's either what you either want to fight, you want to come up against whatever it is and just fight back or you want to run. But what if you could just flow and just be like, you know what, for now I'm going to give myself grace and I'm committing to not doing anything for three seconds and then making a decision and then owning that decision and being like, you know what? Like, I made that choice. I'm going to either learn from it or I'm going to be proud of myself for making that decision. Because I think it's, it's easy right now. If somebody were to send me a hateful text message, it'd be easy for me to respond and say something back or block that person, right? That would be me kind of flighting, if you will. Mm. But the hard thing would be to take a few seconds and, and check myself and say, well, why is this getting me so angry? Like, why am I triggered? Why is this bothering me so much? And practicing the pause and taking time to not only respond instead of react, but reflect and say, okay, how can I use this experience to grow and, and learn more about myself? And then you get better at it, right? So then the next time somebody sends you, says something to you you don't like, you're just able to brush it off a little bit easier. And then what happens is you are able to share those lessons and share that experience with somebody else and help them. And that's what I think life's about. That's why I like your story so much. But I I do want to get back to this mind-body connection because I think people, they're going to be wondering like why, like when you had that injury and you ran into this coach that helped you really reconfigure your mind, if you will, and train the brain to help you be able to to walk, not only walk, but run and compete again at a world-class level, like why that was so important to be able to save you from a potential you know, not only career threatening injury, but I mean, gosh, you talk about inches. I mean, if the car had hit you in a different position, you could have died. Mm. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So if you could kind of dive into the, the mind body connection and then also kind of talk about when we're working out and we're say we're lifting, we're bench pressing and we always, people always say your mind will quit on you before your body will. And there's some research you have behind that and, and what you could say about that too. Yeah. So look, it's, there's this well-known phenomenon in the world and it's this lactic acid phenomenon, meaning when we're pushing and we're pushing and we're pushing and we feel this burn, we feel as though, oh my gosh, that's lactic acid building up. So I have to stop. And we, we see this as a physiological response. But what we've seen in the last, I would say, eight years is there's a lot of research coming out to show, and even research in some well-known labs in Australia coming out that shows that it's not the lactic acid buildup that's making you stop. It's actually a, a response in your brain that is telling you to stop. Now, you think about this. You think, well, how come we didn't know this sooner? If it was lactic acid buildup in our body, as what we say, that's stopping us from moving forward and that's stopping us from cycling or bench pressing, then wouldn't we be able to go and inject ourselves with lactic acid? 
that we would, we, I mean, we, we essentially would be looking at getting the same response. So scientists have shown that there is no, it's not the, it's not the lactic acid buildup in our body that's stopping us. It is this powerful connection that sits in, in your brain that is getting overtrained, that becomes weakened, that sends a signal to your body saying, I'm too weak for this, but it starts in your brain. So then you think, well, how can we make that stronger? Well, first of all, it starts with getting in and, and of course it's doing the reps, but it brings about this notion of neuroplasticity. And I mentioned this earlier and basically the more that we do a specific task, so let's just say we want to keep going out, we want to build that lactic acid lactic acid threshold and we just keep bench pressing, bench pressing, bench pressing, and we keep going and exerting ourselves and we think that we're mitigating lactic acid. Well, what we're doing is we're just building habits, okay? And we're teaching our brain how to withstand a heavier load, okay? But what happens with neuroplasticity is there's two parts to it. Part one is the trigger, which is, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to cycle. And when I cycle, I want to get further before the lactic acid builds up. So going out there and doing the action is part one of neuroplasticity, but all of the actual rewiring of the brain takes place during deep sleep. So if we want to, this mind-body connection is such a powerful one. If we can learn how to, if we can learn the, the basics of neuro, neurology and neuroscience around what this means, like how can we keep going? How can we do that extra rep? It comes down to how well you're training your brain and you can train it through specific tasks, which is what neuroathletics, my company does. We are a full service sports neurology education company. So we teach both neuroscience, but we also coach athletes to in a neurological perspective. And we coach them and train them on mind body exercises so they can become better. They can think faster and they can live longer. Wow. Gosh. That's incredible. I mean, honestly, I knew that there was a, there was a mind body connection, obviously just being that I've been a trainer for almost 10 years now, and I've done a lot of research on the science, but I guess just hearing your journey and you sharing your experience and then your, obviously your expertise in neuroscience on why that's so important. It's incredibly fascinating. And I think the work you do is inspiring as well as a trainer and helping people to really perform not only like their peak performance, but in an optimal way. Like we hear a lot about peak performance. I think that's important, right? But I think living optimally or having like longevity in life is what's important. I think we live in a world where everyone's looking for the quick fix, the quick answer, um, looking to take this pill, looking to do this just to um, solve their problems right away as we were talking about. But I think the real joy comes from taking the proactive approach, kind mm -hmm. of unwinding the things in your life that aren't working and rebuilding some healthy habits and new behaviors and choices that will help you live a more healthy and, and happy life. So I want to leave the audience with a few things. So you do a lot of, of work with neuroathletics and training the mind and doing these exercises, like almost like I think of like bicep curls for the brain, if you will. I love that. What's an exercise or two that you do with your professional athletes that anybody can relate to so that if people are listening yeah. and say, I'm not an NBA player, I'm not an NFL player. Why do I need to train the mind? Like, or what can I do? Like, what does that look like? So what you can do, you can get a tennis ball and you can get into the habit of doing hand-eye coordination drills. Just get one tennis ball, stand two meters away from the wall. And what you want to do is you want to focus at throwing the ball to the wall 
okay, with your not doing underarm, just doing overarm and just catching it and seeing how you can do it for a minute. Then you want to do left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand. That's one drill where we can incorporate the uh, mind-body connection. And then if you want to be really, really you know, vigorous at what I call neuroathletic training is you want to stand on one foot and use whatever foot you're standing on, use the opposite hand to throw the ball at the wall because then we're getting perception and we're getting balance and coordination at play too. And we're also engaging that left and right brain um, activity. So they're the wow. two exercises. Left brain, right brain. So I guess... I mean, I want to follow up on that really quick because you hear a lot about the left brain, right brain, parasympathetic, sympathetic, like parts of the brain. So, or parts of the nervous system, I guess. So what, what's the difference in the left and the right brain? They control opposite sides of the body, but like, why should people be concerned with like separating the two? Well, they shouldn't. So that was my fault. And Uh, I don't think that you should be too concerned about it, but what I was referring to is you are correct in saying that the left side of the body is controlled by the right side of the brain and vice versa. So if we can get into a habit, because I know that just regular activities, we're not really engaging this. So in order to have longevity for the brain, which is long-term brain health, we need to be engaging in many different activities. And one of these activities is the coordination activity, which involves left and right brain hemisphere exercises, which is why I brought that up. Mm, Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I think it's important for people to do all this stuff because you can work on balance, coordination. It also, I think, can be somewhat stress relieving too and soothing to be able to do something that works on your mind. Because then I think you're doing an activity that A, will help reduce your stress levels. And then B, you're also showing yourself some sense of self-love and knowing that you're training yourself and preparing yourself to, to not only be a better human, but, but manage your mindset and your brain better. So this has been awesome. I mean, I love your insight. I love how simple you put things and, and not only that, but your vulnerability and sharing your struggles and how you've turned them into incredible strengths and how you're giving back and using some of your biggest, your darkest moments in your life to bring light to so many people around the world. So where can people find out more about you? Thank you so much. Well, they can follow me on Instagram. I'm the Diamond Boss on Instagram, or they can follow my company's page, Neuro Athletics. We also have a podcast, which is based on neuroscience, neurology, and longevity. It's called The Neuro Experience, which is found on all platforms. Awesome, Louisa. Well, I'll make sure to plug all that stuff in the show notes. And I also want to get a link for that sleep article too, so I can put it in there as well. Yeah. And- yeah, Definitely. Yeah. And like the, the, just like many of the conversations that, that I have, I invite y'all as the audience to maybe pause or re-listen to some of this stuff with a lot of the science or a lot of the things you might not have understood and re-listen to it again and just take some notes and just, you don't have to apply everything that Louisa talked about in this episode, but maybe if you could just take one thing, maybe it's not eating a few hours before bed. Maybe it's dimming your lights. Maybe it's reducing your core body temperature, whatever it is, just take like one small step right? Because if you take one small step, then what happens? Then you're going to want to take another small step, then another small step. And then you look back and you've taken a hundred steps that just started with one and your life is a bit better. And so with that being said, all we ask is that you, if you like this episode and this really touched your heart to share and tell your friends about it, take a screenshot, tag myself, tag Louisa and share one takeaway or one of the tips or tactics that she shared, how you're going to apply it to your life. We once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time. That was wonderful. Thank you.